Father, we love you. And we thank you, God, that you do inhabit the praises of your people. That you give us such great and amazing grace as your children to know and follow you, to love and serve you because you first loved us and you gave us the ultimate demonstration of service and sacrifice when you gave us your son. I pray, Father, as we take our time this morning to look at how Jesus is the anchor of our soul, that you would bless our time, that you would speak to us through it and be glorified. May your spirit be our guide. In Jesus' name, amen. So, last week, the intention was to take Hebrews chapter 6 and go from verse 13 all the way to verse 20. And we went from verse 13 all the way to verse 15. So those three verses, let's do a little bit of review. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So last week we talked about our service to others, the promise of God has given to us. We ended with this exhortation, really, about who we are in Christ. That, that introduction isn't quite right. Um, it's missing a few things. Because what we were supposed to talk about was the anchor of our soul. That's what we were supposed to get to. But instead, um, we latched on to Abraham patiently enduring and obtaining the promise. So we're going to review these couple verses, then we're going to dive into how the promises and the inheritance and the hope that we have in Christ is all based on the unchanging nature of God and is the anchor of our soul. See, that's what we were supposed to get to last week. We didn't get there. So quick review of last week, verses 13, 14, and 15, and then we'll go forward. So we just read that when God had made a promise to Abraham, he could swear by no one greater, so he swore by himself. Making this promise, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So God actually gave Abraham four promises. The promise of the land, the promise of a son, and innumerable descendants. The promise of a covenant between God and Abraham and his descendants. And the promise that through Abraham's seed, singular, speaking of Jesus, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Then this passage says, after Abraham patiently endured, he received the promises. And this is where we, we got off the highway, and we stopped at a cafe, and we ordered a cup of coffee and a banana split, and we just stayed there. Because what we ended up spending a lot of time talking about was how God sees us differently than we see ourselves. Because when we go back and read the book of Genesis, chapters 12 through 25, do we see Abraham patiently enduring? Now, we see Abraham making a lot of mistakes. We see Abraham doing things like lying about his wife. We see Abraham doing things like sleeping with his wife's servant to have a baby because the promise of God hadn't come to pass yet. 
We see Abraham leaving the land that God had promised him because of a famine, right? Over and over and over again, we see Abraham making mistakes. But when God looks back at him, he says he patiently endured. And so we talked a little bit about Gideon, how Gideon was hiding in a wine press, threshing out grain. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, Behold, mighty man of valor. And Gideon was like, huh? Because he wasn't a mighty man of valor at that point. But God saw who he could be, not who he was. And then we talked about Samuel choosing David as king. Or God choosing David as king and sending Samuel to anoint him as such. And how all the brothers came in, these strapping young lads, tall, handsome, muscular. And every time, God said, nope, 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 nope. Until finally, they bring in the scrawny, youngest. And God says, that's the guy. Because in 1 Samuel 16, 7, we're reminded that we tend to look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so we spent a lot of time there last week. So if you missed last week, and that's a message you really need to hear, go back and listen to it. Because I think it's a message we all need to hear. Because we tend to focus on, whether it's ourselves or someone else, outward appearance. We tend to focus on failures or successes or the size of the house or the fanciness of the car or, right, we tend to judge people, whether they're fat, skinny, tall, short, old, young. We, we tend to do that a lot. But that's not what God looks at. That's not what God cares about. And even more important than that, he looks at who he knows we can be in him. Right? So we made that contrast between Gideon and Samson. Samson was born with all this potential that he wasted because of his sin. I'm going to start that message all over again if I don't stop. The point is, who God sees us, how God sees us, differently than we see ourselves, and our identity in Christ is found in the way he sees us. Not the way I see me, or the way you see me, or the way the world sees me the way he sees me. Done. Verse 16. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation to have fled for refuge, to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So in the first couple verses that we're going to really focus on today, verses 16 through 18, we're going to talk about God's unchanging purpose. 
For men indeed swear by something greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, we who have fled for refuge, to lay hold of the hope set before us. Have you ever heard somebody swear? Now, I don't mean bad words. I mean, I swear I'm telling you the truth, right? I swear on my mother's grave. You ever heard that? Don't, don't do that. My mom's not dead yet. And hopefully not for a very long time. She's watching. Um, but, right, you know, you don't, people, I cross my heart and hope to die. Remember, that was in the schoolyard. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. That's right. Then you knew they were serious. Right, you go to court. I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Do they still do that? Are they taking that out of trials? I don't know. I swear to tell you the version of the truth I believe. That's probably a little more likely these days. But that's what an oath is. An oath is us affirming in the strongest possible terms that what we are saying is true. And what the scripture here is telling us and what is quite often true is when a person gets to that point, Right? Some guy, man, I'm just not sure you're telling me the truth. No, I swear that's what happened. Right? Then typically, not always, but typically the other person's like, well, man, if you're, if you're that, yeah, okay, I believe you. Right? That becomes the end of the argument or the end of the discussion when a person is that vehement about what they're saying. So let's unpack how this works when God makes a promise to us. See, God wanted to make the immutability of his counsel sure to his hearers. Now, his hearers, in this case, was Abraham, but it also includes all of us. Because we, by his grace, have the word of God that we can listen to. And he has an immutable counsel, and I love this word. Immutability means the unchanging purpose of, of his promises, right? Immutability is a fancy way of saying the unchanging purpose of his promises. We could go back to this passage and we could read it that way, that thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the unchanging purpose of his promises confirmed it by an oath. And that's amazingly important because in confirming it, in guaranteeing it with an oath, this means that God's promises are confirmed or guaranteed by two immutable or unchanging avenues. Right? It says that by two immutable things in verse 18, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we have this strong Consolation. So the first avenue is the oath that God took. We see God's promise reiterated, promises reiterated throughout Scripture. But the oath being spoken of here specifically took place in Genesis chapter 15. 
See, in that culture, an oath was confirmed by cutting an animal in half, and the two parties would walk between the halves and then offer the animal to God, and then they would eat it together. Right? Today, you know, I, I recently bought a car. We didn't chop an animal in half in the parking lot at the car dealership, and me and the finance manager walked between it, right, as the guarantee that I would pay them back. That's not what we did, right? Instead, I signed, well, my wife and I signed 783 pieces of paper, um, all of which said, if we don't pay it back, they get Lydia. <laughs> so we, we've decided not to pay it back. You know, we love her, but she's, we've had her long enough. I'm joking. I'm not going to sell my daughter for a car. But that's how we do it today. They did it differently back then. <coughs> back then, they did this thing with the cow. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, God made an oath with Abraham, or gave an oath to Abraham, but Abraham never passed between the halves of the animal. Only God did. What that means is that God confirmed the oath and the promises he made to Abraham and the promises that are passed down to us through Abraham's seed, Jesus, and they are completely, totally up to him to keep, not up to us. Right? God took the full responsibility for the outcome of that oath. He took the full responsibility for the keeping of those promises. And I praise him for that. Because if any of it was up to me, I'd be in a lot of trouble. 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny. So that's the first one. The second avenue is that it's impossible for God to lie. So first is the oath, entirely dependent upon him. And second, it's impossible for God to lie. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. In other words, God is perfect, and there is not even one thing within him that could be seen as less than perfect. There's no darkness in him at all. And because lying is a sin, and God is perfect, righteous, just, fair, and holy... He cannot lie. Now, this has always been interesting to me, that there are things God cannot do. Because we get verses like Luke 137, for with God, all things are possible. And we love verses like Philippians uh, 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But here it says there's something God cannot do. So does that mean it's impossible for God to lie. That's what it says. Is that really what it means? Yeah. 
That's really what it means. It's impossible because he cannot do anything that would violate his character or nature. So we have to consider that for just a moment. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. He cannot stop loving you. The Bible says God is love. Love is part of his character, and he cannot violate his character. I like that one. How about God cannot fail? It's not just that he won't, or he doesn't want to, or he's going to do his best. He can't. He can't fail. It's not in his vocabulary. He can't cease being righteous. Which means all the stuff we see in the world today, well, oh, well, you know, God really loves people, so he's just going to let them live however they want. No, he's not. Sin will always be sin, and it will always be wrong, because God cannot cease being righteous. He can't. Now, we don't always like that, but it's still true. And that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian and about following the Word of God. Because there's things in this book that I absolutely love to read. But God is love. God demonstrates that love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I like that. Oh, I like it. The Bible also says that those who are liars, murderers, and sexual, or sexually immoral, and idolaters, and so on and so forth, will spend eternity in the lake of fire separated from the presence of God. I don't like that. You know what? I don't think God likes it either. The Bible says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked in the book of Ezekiel. The Bible says uh, in First, Pe First Peter, First or Second Peter, that God is not slack concerning his promises, but he's patient, hoping that all will come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. God doesn't want anyone to be separated from him. God doesn't want anyone to experience eternal judgment. Those who do will be because they have rejected his free offer of salvation. Right? But there's stuff in the Bible that's sometimes hard to hear. We were in Sunday school this morning talking uh, uh, Acts chapter 4, and then we got it as Luke chapter 6. You weren't there. Um, somebody was there. It was Luke chapter 6. Somewhere, <laughs> it was Luke, where he talked about that we should pray for our enemies, that we should love those who treat us poorly, that we shouldn't seek vengeance. Someone slaps us on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek. Now, how many of us really like that? Somebody cuts you off on the freeway and screams obscenities out their window. Your first response, oh, Lord, please bless that terrible driver. Lord, just thank you that they cut me off and you give me this opportunity to practice patience. Anybody do that? Yeah. yeah I love how honest our church is. I, I don't do that. That's not the first words out of my mouth. Right? Because that's, that's not natural for us. It was supernatural. That's what God wants. So he, he tells us things. But all of that flows from the unchanging 
character of God. And the reason that that's so wonderful for us, though, is because he is immutable, because his promises are unchanging, because his will is unchanging, well, then we know everything in here, everything in here is true, and everything in here is going to happen exactly the way he says it will. And that brings us strong consolation. Doesn't it? That's what the next part says. That because of these two immutable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, the second half of verse 18 says, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So those of us who have fled to Jesus Christ for refuge have this strong consolation as we lay hold of this hope. This word strong consolation, the word strong means mighty or powerful, and then comfort. We can have mighty and powerful comfort because of him. And the word for consolation, this word for comfort, in the Greek is paraklesis. Paraklesis, it's the same root word as paraclete, which Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit as our helper or comforter in John 15, 26. That's our strong consolation. That's our powerful comfort is the very presence of God in us through the Holy Spirit indwelling us who are believers. And the promise of Jesus from the book of John that he would always be there. Love that. And that is given to those of us who have fled to Jesus for refuge and now have our hope set before us in him. There's a great verse in the book of Nahum. Chapter 1, verse 7. It says, The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust. Think about that verse. First and foremost, the Lord is good. That goes back to his character that we were talking about, right? The Bible says that none of us are good. Not a one of us are good, right? We, we sometimes fall into that, oh, he's such a good person or she's such a great person. We're not good. Such a good Christian. Not always. His goodness None of us are perfect. We can do good works by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. But we, in and of ourselves, are sinful. God is good. Love that. He is a strong refuge when trouble comes. Any, anybody in here ever experienced trouble? Right? When that trouble comes, we run to him as our refuge because here's the promise he is close to those who trust in him when we place our faith and hope in him he's always right there so let's look at this hope verse 19 and 20 in verse 19 this hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast in which enters the presence of behind the veil. 
where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He is, this hope is the anchor of our souls. Colossians 1, verses 3 through 5. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. This is the hope we run to Jesus for, the hope that is set before us in the gospel, the hope of eternal life through salvation in Christ. This hope, according to this passage, is the anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. We recently uh, re-watched all of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Anybody ever watch those movies? I, 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 I enjoy those movies. Uh, don't judge me too harshly. Um, or, or just, you know, keep it to yourself. Uh, but I, I enjoy the Pirates movies. Uh, but something that was very, right, big, big boats on the ocean. And over the years, the boats have gotten bigger. One of the most amazing things to me is the shipping container boats. The, the, the boat itself weighs thousands of tons. And then they put thousands of tons of cargo on it, and it floats. I don't know how that works. Now, one of my favorite movies, even though it was panned by critics, is a movie called Battleship. See, my wife's laughing. Starring a guy by the name of Taylor Kitsch and several other people. Um, Battleship. It's, it's based on, right, so they made all the Transformers movies based on the Hasbro toy. They made all these movies and they made billions of dollars. So they said, well, we'll try it again. We'll make a movie called Battleship based on, you guys ever play that game? You know, E4, you sunk my battleship. Um, they made a movie based on that game. So it's about as good as you think it is. That's right. This is upsetting Holden. But there's a scene in the movie where they take out this old battleship, the Missouri, that's anchored in Hawaii, right? Because the movie's very realistic. Aliens invade Hawaii, because where else would they go? Right? You don't want to invade anywhere else. Hawaii's nice. And there's this one scene where the battleship is headed towards a big alien ship, and they drop the anchor on one side, and it causes the whole ship to, to swing around in the ocean. Now, I don't know if that would actually happen or not. Maybe it would. I'm guessing the chain would probably break before the, the ship would spin around, but it was a movie. It's okay. But this is the point I'm getting at, is that when a ship would drop that anchor and that anchor would get purchased in the ocean floor, however that works, what would happen? Well, then the ship wouldn't move, at least not far, right? The waves might rock it back and forth. The current may cause it to kind of shift its position. But as long as that anchor was there, that ship didn't move. And that is why I think it's so valuable that this is the illustration Paul is using for us in Hebrews. When we place our hope in Jesus Christ, running to him, 
for refuge and resting in the hope that is given to us in Christ, we have an anchor for our innermost being. We have an anchor that is secure, that is certain, it's safe, it's firm, it's stable, and it's forceful. We have this hope in God through Christ, who are unchanging. Hebrews 13.8 tells us Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, the object of our hope is unchanging. And that's important. This isn't in here. Uh, well, it is now. Uh, turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 7. If you have your Bible. If not, I'll read it to you. But if you have your Bible, we're going to turn real quick to Matthew chapter 7. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus giving this amazing message that reveals not only his character, but gives us incredible instructions as his followers. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, starting in verse 24. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. What's the difference between the two houses? The difference is the foundation. So yesterday, we, uh, we went for a walk, uh, as one does on a, on a beautiful Sunday or Saturday afternoon. And when I got home, I looked at my front door, and there was something amiss. Right? You know how a door has a frame, and then you know the door has got the hinges and all that? Part of my door frame was about six inches away from the house. That's not okay. Um, and being the master carpenter that I am, I took a hammer and just went whack, whack, whack until I pushed it all the way back in. Then I, then I grabbed my, um, my drill and I put like three or four, uh, three, I think there were th three or four inch screws. I put three or four, three or four inch screws through that into the stud that was behind it because I'm like, your door frame's not supposed to do that. It was not secure. It is now. It may not look pretty because that's not my area of expertise, but it ain't moving. That's what we have in Christ. We have a foundation that is unmovable. We have an anchor that is unchanging. That is so valuable in a world that is like shifting sand. Right, and so when you, you look at the world around us that are constantly placing their faith, right? Placing their faith in a politician, right? I don't care which side you're on. You place your faith in a politician. Politicians eventually going to let you down. Or they place their faith in themselves, right? Well, I'm just, I'm just going to believe in myself. How long is that going to last? Right? Maybe, you're, maybe you are a, a pretty 
well put together person and, and you're, you're smart and you got a good job and you got plenty of money, but eventually some part of that's going to fail. Maybe it's your job, maybe it's your family, maybe it's your health, maybe it's your money, who knows? But some part of that's going to fail. So you put your faith in something else. What about the people, and I don't know, about the saddest person on earth is the person who puts their faith in a celebrity. Ever meet those people? Oh, well, so-and-so said that I should do this, that, and the other thing, and that's what I'm going to do. Oh, my goodness. You're not on a slippery slope. The slope is gone, and you're falling into an abyss. Don't put your faith in a celebrity. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I like movies and entertainment. I think I've made that clear. But I might like a movie, and then when I see that celebrity give their opinion, I'm like, wow, what an idiot. Am I the only one? Okay, I just was trying to check. I, I hope I'm not the only one. I'm like, they're a great actor, but whoo! Or a sports team, or we could go on, right? What happens when you put your faith in anything like that? It changes. It's the same thing that happens when we make decisions based solely upon our emotions. Emotions are great, right? Emotions help us experience happiness. Emotions help us experience joy. Emotions help us to love and care for our family or to feel loved and cared for by our family. Emotions tell us to be sad or warn us when there's danger, right? There's nothing wrong with emotions, but emotions can't lie. Our hearts are deceitful. And if we trust our emotions, what happens with emotions? They change. You guys getting the point? I feel like I'm beating a dead horse at this point, so I'm going to try to move forward. But if we place our faith or our hope in anything that can change, we will be disappointed. We will be let down. When we place our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ, who is unchangeable, who is this rock, this foundation we talked about, this rock that is immovable by the storms of life, then the object of our hope is unchanging. And we have this anchor of hope for our souls that not only will that anchor not be moved, it holds us steady in the midst of uncertainty. When you get into verse 19, the second half of verse 19 and then into verse 20 it says this hope which is the anchor of our souls which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek so entering the presence behind the veil Jesus our forerunner entered for us if you were with us or if you want to go back and listen to our studies in Leviticus in Leviticus 16, God commanded that the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. So God had the tabernacle, big fence around the tabernacle, or, or uh, it was kind of a wall that was made of wood and had skins on it so you couldn't see them. But this was the outer courtyard. Then you had the tabernacle itself, and the tabernacle had two rooms, had the holy place, and in the holy place, you had the, the table of the showbread, the altar of incense, 
Um, there was another. I think it was the altar of sacrifice, if I remember correctly. Then you went into the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant was there. The high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one time per year and only with extensive sacrifices. Because if he went in and he had not made the proper sacrifices or his heart was wrong, God would kill him. They used to send the high priest with a rope tied around his ankle. One of my favorite things, right? They would go in, and they had bells around the bottom of their priestly garments, and uh, they would tie a rope around their ankle. You, you won't find this in the book of Leviticus, but we know from history that they did this. Um, so that if the high priest went in and died, they could drag his carcass out without having to go in themselves. And without having to touch his body, because touching a dead body made you unclean. So they'd take the rope, they'd drag him out, they'd anoint his son. That's a bad day for that kid. <laughs> right? Okay, so your dad wasn't right before God. He went in there and he died. But someone still has to go in there and finish the job. So, congratulations, kid, you're up. Um, while they watch their dad being drug out of the temple or the tabernacle, you know, with a rope tied around his ankle. Bad day. Right? But once a year, that was it. And why did that happen? Well, when we get to Hebrews 9, we're going to get this beautiful commentary that shows us that this was necessary to show us that the way into the presence of God had not yet been made. Right? That we just couldn't enter the presence of God whenever we wanted. That was the point. Like I said, we'll talk more about that in Hebrews 9. But when Jesus died on the cross... We're told in Matthew 27, 51, that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. This veil was upwards of several feet thick because they wanted to make sure that nobody could see into the Holy of Holies. And it was torn from top to bottom. Why is top to bottom significant? Because it shows that God did it. God is the one who tore that veil. And why is it important that that veil was torn? Because it shows us that the way to the Father had been made. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus went first. He's the forerunner into the very presence of God. And now we have the promise I think it's in 2 Corinthians 5 it might be somewhere else I know it's in 1st or 2nd Corinthians that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord that is a glorious promise Ooh. but that way was made by Jesus Christ he could do this as our eternal high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to talk about Melchizedek. Because next week, all we're going to do is talk about Melchizedek. Finally, right? After I've been talking about how excited I am to talk about Melchizedek for like two and a half months now, like most of the summer, ever since we got into somewhere like mid-Hebrews chapter 5, where we have been. Right? We're done with Hebrews 6. Next week, we are going to dive into Melchizedek.
Ooh, so much fun. As we closed, I'm going to give you, a, I love this quote. We, we say it a lot. Uh, but there was a renowned Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. Say that three times fast. And he is credited with this saying, that the only constant in life is change. Now, if we take our great God out of that equation, then it's true. Change is constant. It happens a lot. But it's an inaccurate statement by a man who clearly did not know the one true God. We all know that change in our lives is inevitable, and it's not always pleasant. But no matter how much the world changes or how chaotic or unexpected it is, we can rest in one immovable constant. We can rest in Jesus Christ. We place our hope in the immutable, unchangeable God who loves us so much that he has given us his Son, this is why we're told in Romans 10, 9, and 11 that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. We will never be put to shame for believing in Jesus. Right? The world may try to shame us, People may try to shame us, but we will never experience that ultimate shame because our hope is in the only sure and steadfast anchor for our faith. So as we close, we're going to kind of go back. These questions kind of go back to last week a little bit, but that's okay. My first question and the most important question is, have you fled to Jesus for refuge? Anybody here? Anybody who's listening online, anybody who listens to this recording later, have you come to him, turning from your sins so that you can be saved by his amazing love and grace that can lead you into eternal, into his eternal and unchanging presence? I tell you what, I do not think I could get up every day in the world we currently live in if I did not have hope in Jesus Christ. Is crazy out there. It just is. I don't know how people who have rejected Christ are dealing with all of this. Because I, could, I couldn't. I have a hard time with it, and I have hope. How do you deal with this world when you have no hope? I, I can't imagine. But if you need that hope, well, today's the day. Next, and this goes back to Abraham, what promise from God are you waiting God has given us a lot of promises. And if you are anything like me, you're still waiting on some of them. And if you are anything like me, you're waiting about as well as Abraham did. I would love to say, oh, I'm, I'm a patient man. I spend three hours in prayer every day just trusting in God for everything in my life. But then I would be lying. And that's wrong. Because I am not a patient man. Not even a little. But God has made promises to me that I'm, well, I'm still waiting on. Like I have family members that I've been praying for for 20 plus years that still aren't saved. That's hard. But I haven't given up. 
I might be impatient, but I haven't given up. And we can know whatever it is that we're waiting on from God, he's going to hear us. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. He cannot fail. His timing is just a little different from ours. I do have on here, are you disturbed by the chaos in our world? And if so, rest in the steadfast anchor of our souls. Rest in Jesus Christ. Because that's the only place. He is the only place we can go for hope. And finally, in this, we really spent a bunch of time on last week, but are you struggling with your identity in Christ? If so, get into the word and let God tell you who you are. No one. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, which is the hope we have in Jesus Christ, in the gospel that speaks of his death and resurrection that has given us hope, both hope for our future here, hope for today, hope for tomorrow, and hope for eternity, all founded upon the rock of our Savior. God, give us your grace and your strength and your comfort by the power of your Holy Spirit at work as he indwells each of us who know you. I pray, Father, that in the chaos of this world, that the lost, especially the lost in our own families, the lost in our own community, Lord, that they would come to see you. Help us to show you. And may you be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name. Amen.